Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm here with Dr. Iris Berendt. She's professor of psychology at Northeastern University in the U.S. Her research examines the nature of linguistic competence, its origins, and its interaction with reading ability. She's the author of the book, The Phonological Mind. She will also be releasing a new book in the near future called The Blind Storyteller. So, Dr. Barron, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Sure, thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so I would like to start by asking you, because I guess that perhaps most people out there who are not familiar with the field don't really know what linguistics is about. I guess that most lay people, when, when they get exposed to this term, they think that people are just studying perhaps uh, how grammar from different languages work and how to talk and write correctly and things like that. But that's not really the case when it comes to linguistics nowadays as a scientific discipline, right? Right. So when you're a linguist or a psycholinguist and you go to a cocktail party, so people, you see that people totally don't understand what you're doing and there are all kinds of misconceptions about what this is all about. So, you know, one thing that people immediately ask you is, oh, you speak lots of languages or, oh, you know how to speak correctly, right? So there is this misconception of the study of languages being a catalog of all languages and all words and all sentences or uh, the language police, meaning, you know, this is how you speak correctly and this is how you don't speak. And this is totally not what it's about. So, of course, knowing how languages work and you know, ob obtaining data from different languages is, is, is helpful, but that's not the goal and that, that's not the question. Rather, this is means for an end and the end is to understand language as a human capacity. So the question is really what capacity of the human mind and the human brain allow you and me to communicate in a way that animals do not. So, uh, you know, an example that I often give is, you know, my daughter, Alma, and we used to have a cat that was called Leah. She's no longer with us, but they all both came to us at about the same time um, when Alma was really little. And they stayed for about, you know, 17 years together and with quite significant differences in this experiment because Alma learned how to speak a language, Leah never did. And the, the enterprise in the study of language is to understand the reason for the difference. So why Alma acquired language and why Leah did not, what explains the differences in their capacities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, that's very interesting. And I guess there's a very rich history of how linguistics developed uh, and I mean, at least at a certain point, and this is also part of psychology, uh, B.F. Skinner really had an approach that, of course, was called behaviorism, but basically he, he tried 
to arrive at how people acquire the language, but by reducing it just to reinforcement schedules, let's say, that is, the child would be exposed to words and perhaps uh, she would look at how people use them and perhaps then uh, uh, with time she would start producing language by herself and then perhaps when it worked uh, she she was positively reinforced by what she produced linguistically uh, and when it didn't work she was punished in some way but then came Noam Chomsky uh, and he really brought a revolution to cognitive science in general but also more specifically to linguistics so could you tell us a little bit about what he did there and what is uh, and what are the main differences between his approach and Skinner's approach yeah so the Skinner-Chomsky debate is actually ongoing. It was never resolved in cognitive science. So the questions that were raised by these two figures remain very much active. There is sometimes in slightly different formulation, but you know, the, the real question is really, you know, where language comes from. And the Skinner notion is language is coming from experience. Um, so uh, you know, the, it's it's the um, linguistic environment that is available to the child that is allowed that is the primary source of their capacity for language. Um, so, to put it differently, how does a child acquire language? Why do I say I love you? Why I don't say love I you? The answer is I'm imitating my parents. So Alma, my daughter, heard me saying many times I love you, and that's why she she does so. And the capacity to chain words together is really not something that is very unusual or specific to language. You chain I and love, presumably by the same mechanism that allows you to, you know, look at traffic lights, right? So you know that you first have the red light and then you have the green light and one follows the other. There is just a general sequencing capacity. The words I and love follow each other by the same principles. And this debate then is whether the capacity to sequence linguistic elements is a broad cognitive capacity that is not specific to language or whether there's something unique to language that we are endowed with. And it's this capacity that is necessary to explain um, how we, we get language. Um, there are several reasons to think that, you know, so just to put things straight, there's no question that learning is important. Nobody doubts that. We're not all speaking Chinese or we're not all speaking English. Languages differ and learning absolutely has something to do with that. But so it's a really more nuanced question. The question is, is learning from experience sufficient to explain what's going on in, in language acquisition? And there are different reasons to expect that this might not be the case. Um, one situation in which this becomes very clear is when you look at um, what happens when children are not exposed to a language. And um, I'm, this is, uh, in modern way at times, this is evident when you have deaf children who are reared by, you know, loving, supporting families who are not deprived them of anything, but because the parents are not speaking a sign language, they are simply unable to provide them with sign language that the child can process. And under these circumstances, what you see is that 
the children do not remain language-less. They do not just um, uh, re remain without recourse to linguistic communication, but rather they form sign languages of their own. And when I say sign language, I don't mean pantomime, you know, just using your hands in the way that, you know, I would be doing this. This is not a sign language. Rather, sign languages have specific structure that is shared to some extent with spoken language, to other extent it's different, but there are certain principles that govern sign languages that are not present in, in pantomime. And when these deaf children begin to communicate using their hands, what they're doing is following linguistic principles that are gradually enriching. This has been seen in individual, um, in, in the context of individ individual children and individual families. So these are called home science systems. They have been uh, studied uh, extensively by Susan Golden Meadow at the University of Chicago. Um, there are also entire sign languages that emerge anew. So Nicaraguan sign language is one such example uh, that has been studied by Jody Kegel and Ansengas. And what they've shown is these are cases in which, um, in, in the case of Nicaraguan sign languages, children were brought together in the attempt to teach them how to lip read. So there were deaf children, they had no sign language at home. They came to the school and all they were taught is how to lip read Spanish, which they actually did not do very well at all. But what happened is the children were brought together and when you bring children together, they start communicating with each other and they start communicating with, communicating with each other using their hands, using manual sign language. And it turns out again that when linguists looked carefully at what the children were doing, what they uh, saw is that a language is born, that the language is born anew which is demonstrably different from, you know, uh, gesturing and pantomime. And, and, um, and that suggests that there is something inherent to the child that brings this capacity. Um, you also see the same principles that are not coming just from experience, even in children, although they, in, in normal children, in normal language acquisition, although there it's a little harder to, to see, but they can give you a sense of um, how this is done. So a famous case in this, uh, in this area has to do with how you form questions. So how, if I say you, tell you she is smiling, how do you form the English question, is she smiling? Or is the girl who is happy is smiling, right? How do you know exactly, so you're moving something, right? You're moving the is component, but how do you know if you have two of them, as in the girl who is, the girl who is happy is smiling, how do you know which is to move? And how do you form that? And so you might think that the child might be just imitating the somehow, uh, you know, observing the sentences that are around them and from that um, in imitating what's or, or partly based on imitation, partly based on inference, but from there trying to figure out uh, what's the right rule. And it turns out that this actually is unlikely to be the right answer. Um, I'm not going to go into the technical uh, analysis, but rather give you the sense of what's going on there. And what's going on there is you can imagine yourself, I don't know if you like to hike, but if you go, say, around and, and hike in, in a new terrain that you don't know, and you sometimes get to this crossroads where you can either go on one path and you can go on another path, and you don't know which you know, where the path will lead you, and you need to make the decision right there and there, right there at that moment to, to figure out where you should be going. 
It turns out that ultimately one path will lead you to the right place, will lead you to, let's say, heaven, and the other one will lead you to the wrong place, which is hell. And in terms of language acquisition, one decision that you can make will bring you to the right rule and another will bring you to the wrong rule. But given where you are, given that information that's available at this very moment of language acquisition, you can logically go either way. But the problem is that only one of them is correct. So there is actually not information out there to tell the child where to go. And the question is, what do they do? How do they don't go astray? Well, one possibility is that they might go astray. Maybe the children do make these mistakes. But um, work by, for example, Stephen Crane has shown that that's actually not the case. The children do not never go to hell. They only go to heaven, right? They only select the right path. And, and that is a problem because there is no evidence. So what linguists are doing is the strategy in this case is to ask what information is available to, child, to the child, you know, which path to follow. So actually, I should take a step back. First, to show that there are two paths. First, to show that you can either go one way or, or another. You can also ask what information is available to the child to decide. This is very, very controversial, but I think there is good evidence to suggest, at least in some of the cases, that there is really no way for the child to choose. And then to ask what the child actually is doing. And at least for some of these cases, I think the evidence is clear that the child is not going astray, even though they, there is a choice available to them. And therefore, um, the information that's available to the child is, is insufficient to explain what they ultimately choose. So another way to put it is to say that the, the information that's available to the child is poor. That is Chomsky's argument from the poverty of the stimulus, as it's known, he's saying there's no way that the child can just imitate what's going on, what's available to them, because if they did that, they would get to hell, to the linguistic hell, so to speak, and they don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, and it's also the case that, uh, I mean, parents and people around the child uh, also don't uh, formally instruct them uh, in terms of the language, that is, the, the, they don't, uh, they, they are not taught by their parents uh, in formal ways uh, in yeah. how to speak the language, right? Yeah, no, this is absolutely true, and that's, you know, I, I'm... Sorry if I might have kind of uh, jumped a, a step uh, ahead. Yeah, no child ever gets, you know, grammar lessons about how you form questions. So at no point is the child told, you know, move the auxiliary of the main clause, you know, this is not how language acquisition is going. The problem, though, is much worse than that. So obviously it's the child that needs to make some inferences about what the right rules. Everybody, everybody agrees on that. Even if you grant the child this capacity to make this inference, so the, the, the notion is the child has this really complex, tacit capacity. It's not an explicit rule. The child can never tell you what are the rules of syntax. But there is something in the child brain that allows them to infer rules of language of which they are totally unaware. Nobody has ever taught them the rules. Nonetheless, the question that was raised by Chomsky and by you know, wasn't by Skinner because Skinner thought it makes no sense to talk about rules in the first place. But by, you know, in modern time that is raised by modern empiricists and modern rationalists like Chomsky is, okay, we know that the child is doing that all tacitly. All this miracle, everybody agrees that this is going on. The question is, 
given that the child has this inferential capacity, what information drives it? And one possibility is there is this big linguistic data out there that the child simply needs to mine using mechanisms that are not specific to language. And if you do that, you'll get the right rules. What Chomsky is saying is this actually is not enough because what's out there could have led you to the wrong path. So if you just go by logic, if you just fit, um, think about it like mathematical functions into the linguistic information that's available to you, you could have gone many, many ways that no child ever goes by, and that requires an explanation. So um, in that sense, the information that's available to the child is not sufficient to guide language acquisition, even when you think about it in those tacit terms that the child actually has this amazing capacity to infer rules that they're totally unaware of what those rules are. I hope it makes mm -hmm. sense. Yes, yes, it makes sense. And I would just like to ask you just to clarify this a little bit more for people who are not really familiar with this subject. So, uh, uh, since Chomsky, uh, do we, uh, are we also considering in, linguistic, in linguistics the innate components oh, yeah. uh, of our cognition that are specifically dedicated to language acquisition? Is that right. the case? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Chomsky in modern time is the, uh, you know, responsible for implanting this notion of universal grammar in, in you know, in, in the intellectual community. And his suggestion by that is to make things, so what is universal grammar? It's this set of rules of language, very broad rules. They have to be very broad because we are born with them, they are common to every human language. This is the mold by which every human language is kind of shaped. So it has to be something that is very broad because it's common to English and to Japanese and to Swahili and any human language, if it's right. But the notion is there is such a mold by which all languages are shaped. And it's this general principle with which we are born that presumably help us solve the problem of the poverty of the stimulus. So if you think about the metaphor of you, you know, standing there with the two paths of where am I going to go in language acquisition? Am I going to choose this rule or that rule? Which of course is totally unconscious. Universal grammar is what tells you go in this way and do not even consider the other because you know, this is this is kind of your um, you know guide in, in language acquisition, so to speak. So, yeah, that's his proposal. Mm -hmm. Okay, and is it the case that, uh, and I don't know if this makes sense perhaps from an evolutionary perspective, but is it the case that people tend to associate uh, certain sounds to certain things uh, in the world? Ah, yeah, uh, they do, they do. So uh, you, you mean to link certain sounds with certain concepts? Yes, yes, uh, yeah, yes, and, and perhaps, I, I don't know, perhaps just to give an example, uh, uh, associate one sound that has specific uh, traits with something out there that perhaps uh, in a certain way resembles that yeah. sound. 
Yeah. So obviously we do. So we talk about cats that meow, right? So that has something to do with how the sound that the cat is making. Um, there are actually more, and you know, there are other examples to that. So um, an interesting case um, was, uh, is a group of scientists led, led by Blasi who uh, surveys about 6,000 uh, word lists, let's call them languages, and asked, are there certain associations that are occurring between certain concepts and certain sounds? And they did find such associations, and this is across thousands and thousands of languages. So that's kind of an interesting finding. So to give an example, what they find is the concept of breast is associated with sounds like um, e, m and u, which are all both round. Um, what does it mean? So I don't think that the, the words themselves are, are innate. That is unlikely because languages are so different from each other in this way. But what might be innate is there might be some common pressures about concepts. So, you know, what we, this is in the, in the, you know, how the human body looks like and the fact that the breasts are around or that the children um, 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 uh, use the lips um, in, in nursing. And, it, and we associate the two things together. And, oh, sorry, so we talked about the concept and there is, of course, the sound itself as well. So the ba and u sounds are produced by the lip that has this rounding of shape. And you associate things that are similar together. So that's not so surprising that when two things are similar, they tend to be brought together. What to make of that? So the reasons why, you know, why is it interesting and why people raise those things? And you raise those things precisely because it's an exception to the rule, because it's not the rule, right? Um, because this is not usually how words are formed. Um, if I give you in, a word in a new language, if I tell you what is kelev, what do you think kelev means? You probably don't know if you don't know Hebrew. So typically, you, there are no discernible associations between sounds and meaning. Um, why? Because typically the link between sound and meaning is arbitrary and it's the power of language to do that. So it's the power of language for me to use this totally crazy sound combination, Caleb, and in so doing implant a concept in your brain, right? And that's really an interesting, unique capacity of language. Now there are, excep there are exceptions to the rules. There are situations in which the concepts and the sounds share something in common, and, and the examples I've noticed is, is one of them. But I think that's actually what's, what's more interesting is this powerful capacity to link sounds and meaning even when they have nothing in common, which that I think is really the more um, interesting capacity of, of language um, that, that um, I think is really, to me actually, is much more surprising. Mm -hmm. Yes, so from all of what you just said, I, I get that uh, language is a specialized cognitive system that we have, but it also has some associations with uh, other cognitive non-linguistic systems. So, for example, it also connects to things like our perception works, how our motor systems work, and also the fact that perhaps 
we need to categorize things in order to think about them and to deal with them intellectually and perhaps uh, all of these things also influence how languages get built up right yeah so language is only done in a certain cognitive niche with a certain bodily niche of how the human body works and um, what my work specifically is about phonology which is probably where you see this tension between language and the body you know more uh clearly than any other domain so um you know phonology is has to do with um how we in the simplest terms express words using elements that are themselves meaningless so the fact that um you know to express the word god uh you're expressing that by sequencing three different sounds and you become aware of that by the fact that if you were to change the order of the sounds you'll get a totally different word so if you know instead of god you'll get dog for instance right just by uh, changing the sequence and phonology is telling you how to sequence those sounds why certain sequences are okay and why others are not dog and god are both equally good sequences in english but you can think about others that are not so gda would not be a good sequence in english it would be perfectly fine in hebrew for instance so the question is what are the constraints on those sequencing and this is where the link with the body with the sensory and motor system becomes very evident and in fact if i asked my you know most lay people why do people think that gda is bad they would immediately say of course you know it's really hard to articulate so it's not a linguistic rule it's not an abstract notion that prevents you from putting those sounds together but it's directly the articulatory motor system that is kind of driving the car there so it is the so it's not a it's not a, an abstract rule that prevents us from putting those two sounds together da uh, actually three right but rather it is the fact that we just can't articulate that of course i just show you that you can right so uh, but it, the the argument can be more nuanced so maybe it's harder for us to articulate it and and that's why we don't say it together um and what i've been doing in my work is try to adjudicate between these possibilities and here i think it's kind of important to keep in mind that the fact that you might have this kind of two pressures there is the pressure of language and there is the pressure of the body that does not necessarily mean that um it's one or the other so it may well be the case that the design of language during evolution has evolved to abide by those bodily pressures so it could very well be the case that the restrictions on da why this is not a great combination have some distant motivation in articulation but the direct cause of those restrictions remains the language system so you can think about it as kind of a two step process in which evolution has designed the grammar in a certain way designed universal grammar rather in a certain way it um uh, it favored languages that are going to abide by the restrictions of the body but the direct reason why you're going to tell me that da is a bad sequence may not come necessarily from your articulation system but rather from those abstract rules now 
this is an empirical question. You can go to the lab, do experiments, and find out which one is the right answer. Um, how? Well, one way is you can uh, disrupt the motor system. So there is this um, uh, technique that is called transcranial magnetic stimulation that allows you to deliver current to specific areas uh, in the brain. And with my collaborator, Dr. Alvaro Pascual Leone over at Beth Israel uh, Deaconess here in Boston, what we've done is um, uh, basically zapped our participants' brain in particular sites, so in the site in this case that controls the uh, lips, so it's called the lip motor area. So I should say, you know, in the motor strip in the brain, there are specific sites that, speci that control specific um, organs of the body. There is a site that controls the lip. There is another one that controls the tongue and so forth. And what we did was to disrupt the site that controls the tongue. And the question is, what is it going to do to phonology? And the notion is that if phonology is all about articulation, right? If the reason why you prefer certain sounds to others, you're trying to actually say it and fail, then if we were to zap this area, then your knowledge of phonology is going to be attenuated. And that's not at all what we found. So that is one reason why we think that the knowledge of language does not depend directly on articulation, that the link is much more indirect. Um, in another set of studies, we looked at what, uh, in collaboration with uh, Jacques Miller's lab, um, the first author in the study was David Gomez, um, uh, both papers were, were published in PNS, which is a good place to publish. Um, so in that study, uh, we asked what happens when you take neonates who obviously cannot say anything um, and look at what their, which structures, which phonological forms are easier for the brain to process. And again, we found that um, infants uh, prefer certain, so uh, uh, syllables like blah, um, the infant brain uh, processes that more, the, more easily compared to structures such as uba. So again, that tells us, even though there is a good articulatory reason for why those constraints are the way they are, it looks to us like the immediate cause of your linguistic preferences comes from abstract linguistic constraints in the language system rather than the distant articulatory cause. So yeah, there is kind of this really interesting mind-body tension where the design of, of our cognitive system is not arbitrary, but that doesn't mean that it does not exist, meaning that the direct cause of what we're doing language comes from the body directly. Now, I, I just want to make it clear, I'm not a Cartesian dualist. I'm not saying that the language system is not in the brain. Obviously it does, but, it's, um, but the point is that those principles are abstract principles rather than the principles of the motor system. I hope I, I, I made it clear. <laughs> yes, sure, sure, and that's all very interesting. And so now I would like to ask you if there's any evidence of uh, language occurring also in non-human animals. And I mean, perhaps 
there we could tackle this question by this question by two different sides the first one we could talk perhaps about the species that are the biologically closest to us that is our primate cousins of course because i mean through, throughout the last few decades at least we have uh, we have had some interesting cases at least of some primates acquiring uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure if they really acquired it, but at least they were able to use sign language to a certain extent. And then on the other end, species, that, other species that are a bit uh, f uh, more far from us, like, for example, cetaceans and dolphins uh, and even bird species who seem to be able to learn particular local dialects. But I'm not sure if we should classify that as language or not. Yeah, I think you put the question in a really uh, very intelligent way um, because Yes, there is. So the question is, what other species are vocal learners? Um, and it is indeed the case that our closest relatives are not really great at vocal learning, and it's really more these more distant species that are the you know um, exceptional vocal learners. Um, these two uh, research methodologies are also different. So um, in the case of our um, so. And, and actually for a good reason. So it's precisely because our primate relatives are not great vocal learners that to try to examine their capacities, they were tested on their abilities to learn a human language um, as opposed to uh, their own system of communication, right? And um, so I think it was the 70s that a group of researchers at Columbia University uh, led by Herb Terras um, they got this chimp that was called Ninchimsky for obvious reason. Uh, and, and, you know, and they tried to look at whether the chimp will acquire a language. And, of course, the broader question is whether the capacity for language is shared with um, other non-human animals. And they taught him sign language just because there are obviously uh, one, one uh, barrier for language acquisition is sensory and motor capacities so to try to um, um, avoid the articulatory uh, or to override or to kind of um, go around the, the articulatory restriction um, he was taught a sign language yes he acquired some sign language yes he acquired some signs yes he formed some combination yes he formed some novel combination but when you look at exactly what he was doing you see that he used language in a way that really children do not use. So while there are some superficial similarity to, similarities to human language, there are significant differences to what children are doing. So for example, he would use signs and repeat the same sign over and over. You know, it would be akin to me saying, you know, big boy, 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 or something, or, you know, give me, give me, give me, and in that way generate these super long sentences, which human children do not do. So um, it's one of those cases where the presumed achievements kind of question the capacity more than they affirm it. Um, in the case of birds and uh, you know and, and dolphins and whales, this is actually very interesting. So and there in, in, in those situations, what one typically looks at is the natural system of communication in that um, in, in that species and ask 
tries to uh, define these species. And there one finds really rich systems of communication, um, which uh, have some, you know, similarities to human language. So for example, they say similarities, not identities. So um, one really interesting uh, case um, by my colleague Evan Balaban, who looked at swamp sparrows. So it turns out that swamp sparrows in New York and swamp sparrows in Minnesota both share the same vocabulary, so to speak. They have the same notes, so the same specific elements, um, but they combine them in different ways. So um, if we call them one and six for the two different notes, um, one species is doing one six and the other is doing syllables like six one. So it's a little bit similar to blah versus blind in the example I gave you. And, and, and they communicate like this naturally. That's the natural system of communication. And when one looks at this rule more carefully, one sees that it's a really very broad rule. For example, um, you can take one, stick any other note in the middle, and then stick the other note, six, at the end, and the bird would still consider it its language. So it's, it's a very powerful system, and that, that's quite impressive. Um, whether it's language or not is really an empirical question. So this really opens a research program in which one can start by identifying what we mean by language, what are design principles of human language, then goes to go to other species and ask, here is my laundry list of what I think is critical about language, A, B, C, D. Do I find A? Do I find B? Do I find C? And that can be uh, a real active and, and rich research program. From what we tell right now, there are similarities but there are some significant differences, uh, which suggest that when we say language, it really means it's really a, a natural class in the in the sense that it really means something very specific. So, um, for example, one thing that is uh, perhaps easier to explain is this metaphor of language is a double layer cake, right? So. Language is all about patterns, right? I say, I love you, or I say, blow. But blog and I love you are patterns at a different level. In blog, I'm taking sounds that are meaningless, elements that are meaningless. B has no meaning, L has no meaning, and I put them together to create one level, the word blog. When I say I love you, I take three elements that each has a meaning and put them together. So by this double layer cake, there is this patterns of meaningless elements and there is pattern of meaningful elements. What we don't you do, what we do not do as humans is create sen sentences from individual sounds. So you could have imagined a language in which, you know, there is a word for, you know, I means, you know, I and, and you means oh and love means ooh and you would say ah oh ooh ooh ah oh and, and so forth and that would and that's how the language works. So there would is going to be only one uh, level of patterning and that's not what we find in humans. That here however is what we find in animals and we don't know of any animal species that naturally communicate with this double care double layer communication cake. This is not something that we know of. And that suggests a significant design um, uh, difference between human languages and non-human languages. Mm -hmm. 
Very well. Okay, so you've already, you've already also alluded a little bit to this earlier in the interview, but uh, what are the features that sign and spoken language share between them? And I mean, do, do they also have the same uh, cognitive basis? Right. Yeah. So this is a super interesting question. And maybe before I answer the question, um, uh, kind of uh, address why it's an interesting question. And it, it's an interesting question because it goes to the basic um, um, uh, question of what is language all about? So is language about this abstract cognitive capacity, a set of abstract rules? Or is it about my ability to move my lips for English or use my manual, use my, my hands in a, in a manual sign language? And the expectation is that if language is really this abstract capacity, then there might be similarities even between languages that use totally different modalities. So not only will I find similarities between English and Chinese, but also between English and American Sign Language, ASL, for instance. Of course, this is not, whereas, you know, conversely, if language is only a, you know, if the driver of the language horse is the body, is my articulation and, and sensory system, then you should not expect much similarity between these two uh, modalities. Now, of course, we would expect some differences because, as I said before, languages are always anchored that are not totally, th there is a reason why the languages are designed the way they are. But it might be nonetheless possible that there are some abstract similarities nonetheless and that's exactly what um, you know my lab is doing um, we're asking what and we're doing that at the level of phonology which is where you would least expect any similarities between a spoken and sign language because phonology is you know some linguists define phonology as the sound patterns of language so how can you have the sound pattern of a sign language right obviously you don't but you can ask is there a pattern of meaningless elements that that are there similar restrictions on how you use meaningless elements in these two modalities and it turns like in terms like they are um so one way to start is take signers asl signers take english speakers and ask what do they each know about their respective languages are there similarities and yes there are similarities for example both have a notion of a syllable um, both have restrictions on how you put syllables together um, so in languages that use reduplication which is the repetition of a linguistic element what you usually find is it's okay to have patterns like malala, it's not okay to have patterns like malama, A-B-A. So malala, A-B-B, that's fine, but malama, that's less fine. And it turns out that sign languages also do the same. Um, and if you, what we've done is uh, bring signers to the lab and probe into the knowledge and um, my student, my graduate student Kathy Anden and uh, myself and my collaborators found that that was really uh, what happened with signers and uh, as well. What we also do that in the lab is something that is even more wild, which is ask the following question. If you're a speaker of a spoken language, obviously, you've never seen a sign language in your life, you don't know anything about sign language. How is, are you going to treat it? Are you going to treat it as a visual pantomime 
or is it going to get your brain language system to tick? Is it going to kind of, are you going to try to use some of the notions that you know about spoken language or indeed about any language and project them to your sign language? And the results that we suggest is that yes, you do. Um, and the way that say English speakers and Hebrew speakers interpret signs in ASL differs in a way that is consistent with the grammar of the spoken language. Um, there's a little bit of technical detail to explain all the differences, all, you know, all, all the concepts, but um, these conclusions, both from looking at signers and looking from what speakers do when they look at signs, suggest to us that what you know about phonology is not about spoken language and it's not about sign language, it's about some very abstract principles. And some of those principles you can even project to a totally new modality. So if you think about it, if you're, the, the principle that you have in phonology is about, is it okay to put ma and la together, or ma, la, la? Obviously, if I'm going to give you a sign that has three identical, you know, A, B, B structure like that, this has no relevance to what you know. But if your rule has something about, for any X uh, element, I can have identical element next to it. So I can have, you know, X, Y, Y, but not X, Y, X, then it doesn't matter for you whether this element is spoken, whether you are, the element is signed, because the rule, all it cares about is the abstract pattern, and you have two identical elements or two different elements, and it doesn't matter then if it's spoken or signed. And the fact that people project the rule in this, in this way suggests to us that maybe these rules really have this really abstract format, even in phonology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th uh, that is really amazing. So uh, just before we get into the differences between spoken and written language, I just wanted to ask you a couple of more things about, uh, more about the developmental aspects of language acquisition. So just two quick questions. The first one, uh, are there critical periods for language acquisition, that is, if the child goes through some uh, chronological threshold without language acquisition, then she is no longer able to acquire it. And on the other end, is it also true that uh, if people acquire one language, then and they don't acquire any other language during those critical periods, then the fact that they've acquired that first language renders it more difficult to them to then acquire a second language, perhaps in adulthood or something like that. Yeah, those effects of interference even occur within the critical period, but yeah, but the notion of critical period is clearly a um, well-established notion in biology. It doesn't look like it's the kind of, you know, uh, door that totally closes on you, but it only is a window of opportunity that gradually narrows on us as we grow older. My English accent is a case in point. So, you know, if you don't, I did not acquire English fully until I was older and, um, and, and when that happens. 
no matter how many years you're exposed to that, you'll never sound, for most of us, not everybody, but for most of us, it will never sound like a native English speaker. So there is a certain window of opportunity early in development in which language as, is it prime, and, and if you acquire language afterwards, then you never make it quite. Um, there is also this uh, uh, notion uh, in, in, whereas if you acquire language, and that actually is an in, in, interesting uh, finding, if you don't acquire language at all, and then you try to acquire language late in life, for example, because you are a deaf adult who was never exposed to a sign language, and then you're exposed to a language later in, in life, you have tremendous difficulties catching up. But it's interesting, the work of uh, uh, Rachel Mayberry, uh, what she find is that as long as you're ex exposed to sign language, so if you're exposed to a sign language early on, and then you're trying to say, learn how to read English and you're a deaf signer, that exposure to sign language early on produces saving to a new language in a new modality. Um, so, uh, which suggests to us that it's really exposure to language generally as opposed to English or ASL that that um, that is um, the main, that is uh, so that obviously you know it, the, this is not to say that it doesn't matter what language you are exposed to first. It does just say that there are some savings and some transfer even between languages that are very different. And getting a language first within this window of opportunity is absolutely critical. So window of opportunity is very important. This being said, yes, there are some interference also. So it's called, you know, you can think about it in terms of the curse of knowledge. Once you learn something, it can interfere with your ability to, to learn other things. Um, you can see that, you know, even within the first year of life. So um, this is seen more at the realm of phonetic uh, categorization. So um, we humans, when we you know, we hear speech, we tend to put it into buckets, so it's either ba or pa for us, um, and, or if you're, you know, um, uh, a speaker of Japanese, uh, so, sorry, if you're a speaker of English, you'll think about those sounds as la and ra. If you're not exposed to that, uh, you gradually lose this capacity, and that begins to happen uh, within the first year of life. So, if you take the Japanese parents and present them with la versus ra, they have difficulties with that. If you take their newborn baby and present them with the same sounds, they are perfectly fine hearing this difference. Gradually, as they become older, and we're talking like within the first year, by the time they reach the first birthday, suddenly they lose uh, a lot of this capacity. Not totally, but, but it, it narrows down. So, uh, which is probably due to the uh, interference um, from the sound, similar sound in Japanese that they are familiar with. Um, the reason why we think it's because of the curse of knowledge about what you already know is, if you're presented with sounds that are very dissimilar to what you know already. So if you're presented with Zulu clicks, for instance, um, people are are much better at recognizing this type of sounds, probably because there is no uh, similar sounds in the language that would interfere with those sounds. So part of the problem is that what you know already is, is like a magnet. So if for you, uh, Ra are the same sounds and you're presented with two different sounds and you're trying to kind of 
they're all pulled together into the same point, then it's hard for you to to uh, keep them apart. So yeah, some of, of uh, what we know interferes, but um, biology and maturation so many plays a role in that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and are there any interesting studies done perhaps on feral children that have also helped us tackle this issue of the critical periods to language acquisition or the necessity to being exposed to language during our development? Yeah, so people are aware of the reports of feral children, but I don't think that's necessarily, and, and you know, and feral children obviously had difficulties catching up on language uh, if they were discovered late in life. Um, I don't think from a scientific perspective, I'm not sure this is the best illustration because obviously those children got a lot of abuse, they were had deprivation on multiple social emotional levels. So when you get a situation like that, you really can't tell, you know, is the child unable to communicate because they are lacking language or because of other reasons. It's it becomes a more complicated question. Not impossible but complicated. Um, the cases of Nicaraguan sign language we discussed earlier and home signs are much better examples because like the feral children, those children are deprived of language because just because they're deaf, but they are raised by loving, you know, supporting families. So they have no other deprivations. And then you can pinpoint and say, it is only language that is deprived. There is no other deprivation that you can uh, uh, point to and then ask so what happens to the language capacity in these individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, that, that was what I thought, that perhaps studies done on feral children are really controversial because there are a lot of different factors going around there. And so that was, I, was one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you about that as well. So, and now uh, about the difference between spoken and written language. Is it the case that it is much more difficult for us to acquire written language and we have to go through a, pe a period of formal instruction in order to be able to read and write because from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, uh, lang uh, written language only have existed for the last 5,000 years or so. Right. right. Right, and, and it's not just a matter of time, but probably also, also mechanisms. So, uh, you know, there is good reason to suspect that language is a human instinct, to paraphrase Steven Pinker, right? That we have language because we have a specialized capacity that is involved for that. It's, it's shaped by biological evolution. For reading, there is absolutely no reason to suspect that reading is designed by evolution. Um, there are many uh, cultures that have no reading and writing systems and they're doing just fine. So reading is a cultural invention. It's a technology, you know, think about it. If you know a word, right? If you know the word dog, what you learn is how to link this sound dog to a meaning. And once I say dog, this opens you know, a safe in your brain and links the sound to this meaning. When you learn to read, you're learning a new code to open the language safe. And it's a code that was never, the language safe was never to, to designed to work on this combination. The normal combination of the language system is phonology. It's when you hear phonology or when you sign phonology, right? 
some kind of meaningless pattern, whether it's spoken or sign, that's what opened the door to your concept dog in your brain. It was never designed to work on spelling, but somehow we managed to find this additional kind of pathway to get into the, you know, in, into our safe. And it's a totally a natural one. And it's one that children need to absolutely learn how to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yes, but, but I mean, even the written systems that we've developed, they are not completely disconnected from yeah. our phonological systems, correct? Yeah. So the first insight to understand is that language and reading are different and they are not one and the same and language is natural and reading is totally an unnatural system. This being said, you can ask, okay, is reading and writing totally unrelated to language or whether there are similarities? And actually, then you're right to know that there are similarities. And in fact, it's interesting to know that when you look at how reading works, what reading is doing is really mimicking the same process of opening your language door that you do in speaking. What I mean by that is, when you speak, you're using phonology to open the door for dog, right? So if I tell you Caleb, now you know that it's this new sound combination that opens the same door for dog, right? Um, when you read, you are also using sound in order to uh, open the same door. You might think this sounds like a crazy idea, and indeed, most people, when they think about reading, they think about it as a visual process. You know, so it's the same thing as you recognize, um, you know, this, you know, stop sign, traffic sign, you're looking at the visual form, you're associating it with meaning, and that's how you get it. But that's actually not how reading works. I'm not saying that you don't read using your eyes, obviously you do, but that's only the beginning. So what I mean is, when you see the word dog, what you're doing is, you're getting the letters visually, no question about that. But then what you're doing is what in the States we called decoding phonics. So what you're doing is you're saying, okay, a D is a D, and O is an A, a G is an G. What have I got? Hmm, it sounds like dog to me. Let's use the phonology key to open something, find, do I know this word in the lexicon? And it's this phonology, phonological, getting the phonology from scratch, from those letters, that opens the key to the lexicon. How do we know? Because if I get you something that is spelled differently but sounds like a word, if I give you R-O-Z-E, not a rose, and ask you, is that a flower? People, skilled readers would say, kind of tend to say, oh yeah, I think it's a flower, when obviously it's not. Why? Because the sound is using reading. So if I give you something that has the same sound, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of a sound trap and, and people fall in the sound trap, which shows that normally when they read, they are relying on, on phonology nonetheless. Um, so the broader lesson from that, so you might ask, so why reading works this way? Why use the same code to get into the language system? And the answer might be because Precisely because read, because language is an instinct and precisely because reading is not, when human brains come to invent a new technology, they're not that creative. We're not just starting completely anew, but rather we're relying and building on this core knowledge, on what we know already, 
and reusing that in the word in the words of uh, uh, Stan DeHaan, the neuroscientist. Um, the brain is a recycler. It's taking those systems that are already there for different purpose and reusing them and repurposing them for a new uh, purpose. So it's for this reason that language relies on phonology and it's for this reason that people with dyslexia, for instance, which is defined as a reading disability, again, it's a misconception. People think that dyslexia is visual letter switching. You can have dyslexia for various reasons, but the most important reason is not letter switching. The most important reason and the most fundamental difficulty that is seen in dyslexia actually has to do with speech processing, not with, uh, and the idea, and you can see this problem with children who are at risk for dyslexia, even infants who are at risk for dyslexia. What I mean by that is dyslexia is a hereditary problem in trans in families. If you take an infant who is born to a family in which there is dyslexia across generations, you look at their speech perception abilities. The person is, the, the baby obviously responds to speech, they can hear fine. But if you look at it very carefully, you see subtle differences. It's not quite normal. So obviously the child will know, if I said dog, they'll know what I mean. But the difference, say, between da and ta, is not exactly the same as in hearing individuals. And because it's those same brain networks that are later supposed to support reading, it's not surprising that reading is becomes really difficult to, um, for these children to acquire. So reading is all about language, speech, and phonology. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and so is there any evidence to support the hypothesis that the language we use uh, shapes the way we think and how we perceive the world. And I think that originally this hypothesis was put forth by uh, Sapir and Worf in the Sapir-Worf hypothesis. Yeah, 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 yeah indeed. Um, yes, there is evidence to suggest that. Um, so just to clarify again, to restate the, the question, um, we talk differently, right? Uh, you speak Portuguese and I speak Hebrew, and each language is different. So say in Hebrew, if masculine and feminines are mar marked by different, so marked gender or nouns and verbs, the question is if I talk differently, do I think differently? And is that because of how I speak? So there are really two questions. If we and you and I talk differently, do we think differently? And can we further demonstrate that it's the talking that affects the thinking, or rather the uh, talking, the language that affects the thinking? So in our case, am I going to be oh much more sensitive about to gender differences just because my language marks gender? That would be an example of that. Most people, when they think about that, they think about a really strong deterministic view that if your language does not have gender, then you won't be able to conceive of gender, right? Or something like that. Most of the cases are not like that. Most of the cases show, yeah, if you talk differently, you think slightly differently, but it's slight differences, meaning you might process certain words, certain concepts more faster than other, um, but it's not like you can't think about gender just because you don't mark gender in your language. That would be preposterous, ridiculous. That's not the case. 
This, however, does not mean that the strong warfare hypothesis is, is always wrong. So I want to emphasize it because there is huge, huge literature on the warfare hypothesis, and there are many studies that show that how you talk affect how you perform in various lab tasks. But in most of those cases, it would be really strange to say that you can't conceive of these ideas, but rather, yeah, you can access them more easily than others, but it's not like a huge fundamental difference. Our minds are not incommensurable just because we talk differently. That's not the case. But there are a couple of cases, very limited ones, in which the strong deterministic hypothesis is actually true. And this is really amazing, and this is quite surprising, and that's why I, I wanted to share that with you. Um, so one of those cases is number cognition, how we think about number. Um, but it's, it's always kind of a nuanced story, so I need to tell you a little more about that. So um, how you think about numbers. So um, the question there is, if you have no words for number in your language, if you have no word that means three and another word that means four and exactly three and four, would you be unable to understand the concept of four? It turns out like it looks like it, that's really the case. So the evidence comes from uh, two cases and which are complementary. One case comes from the Piraha, which is a group of hunter-gatherers in Brazil. They have words that mean roughly one and roughly two. It's, in English, it's the concept of a couple. A couple it took me a while to understand this concept that it's not one and it's not two. A couple can be three. It doesn't necessarily have to be really two. And they think about one and two in this way. It's around one and it's around two, but they don't have these precise words for one and two as we do. When Peter Gordon from uh, Columbia went to the Pirha together with Dan Everett uh, and looked at the numeric capacities of the Pirha, they found that the Pirha can deal with numbers to some extent, but the way we, they deal with that is totally different from the way you and I think about that. So if I, the, the Pirha are presented with, say, six objects, and you ask them, how many are there? On average, they'll get it around six. But you and I don't get it around six. We know that it's a six. It's not five. It's not seven. It's a six. They don't have this concept. They don't have this precise concept of six as six. Rather, they rely on other mechanisms that infants have, that animals have. But this capacity for six as such, they do not have, it, apparently. Now, given these results from the Piraha, one would say, okay, but they're hunter-gatherers. That's what Dan Everett, uh, who works with this group closely, originally said, okay, they just don't care about it. It's not like they don't can do that. They don't want to do that. They, the culture, it's the culture that doesn't care about these kind of distinctions, and it's because of the culture that they don't uh, conceive of number. Given the pure harm results, that was a reasonable interpretation, except for it's wrong. It's wrong because... Subsequent research, again, Nicaragua, Nicaragua comes to the rescue. Um, so subsequent research has went to home signers in Nicaragua and looked at their numeric capacities. So I mentioned home signers. These are the situation in which kids grow in a loving, supporting family, but just they don't have sign language around them, and they have a form of communication that 
it has some aspects of language, but is limited. And in that particular case, it's limited in as much as it doesn't have words for specific number words as one and two and three, as we do. Except for these Nicaraguan kids live in a, you know, capitalist societies like we do, and they have all the reason in the world to develop numeric capacities. They want to engage in commerce. They want to make sure they get the right change and so forth. So obviously they have all the pressures to develop language, uh, to develop numeric uh, cognition that is precise, and they don't. And they don't. So given these results and the Pirahar results, the most parsimonious explanation of what's going on here is if your language has no words for number, then you're not getting this precise numeric representation, which we call recursive number. And this is a profound effect of language on thought. There aren't many examples like that. There are a few more, but very, you know, very few examples like that. But in this case, not having a notion of six and seven, it's, it's a really big deal. Um, and it looks like this, is, has, this requires language for that to emerge. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the Piraha are a really interesting tribe and they have been the source of many controversies yeah. and, and I've heard then Everett at some point yeah. saying that they don't think about the future and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, he even said that their language lacks recursiveness. Yeah. That was one of the properties that Noam Chomsky included in his universal grammar. But I mean, I'm not sure to what extent some of his claims are really true or not. The, the questions remain controversial on several levels. So there is the question of whether or not the linguistic analysis of Piraha requires Piraha, it requires recursion. That's one question. And more significantly, what does it mean about universal, gram universal grammar? Um, so I think that will get us to a long discussion of, uh, but there, different formulations of universal grammar in which you can account for those facts. And those results, while very interesting and informative, if they're true, and I said this is controversial, if they're true, um, I, I'm not sure that would mean that we are lacking innate universal res restrictions on language. Um, there are other ways to capture those results. Um, but I think this is, you know, I think Dan Everett really is a service to the field to, to that he documented those uh, findings and raised the discussion. I do not agree with his interpretation. Um, Dan Everett and myself had a really kind of heated debate on universal grammar and phonology. I think he is wrong on how he, you know, how he characterizes the language capacity. Um, but I think that, you know, it's a really healthy debate. Okay, so let's not get now into the Piraha, otherwise we would have to do another hour of interview. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so Dr. Berendt, just before we go, uh, could you please give, give us at least a small teaser of what your next book, The Blind Storyteller, will be about? Right, so, uh, a teaser, I'll try to make it quick. Um, so the book, this is a totally research, new research program. So I'm, I've always been interested in human nature, right? And what is our innate knowledge? Are there such things as innate ideas? Which is really the, in the Platonian notion of are there, are, there, are there certain concepts and principles 
that you're born with is that the whole possibility right um so i always looked at my working language as a way to examine this broader question of innate ideas and with the years that i've been working on that i i began to sense that people think this is a crazy hypothesis and it's a crazy hypothesis not because you know you can say okay there is no evidence to support universal grammar or you have really bad experiments or this is all fair game i have no problem with that i'm a scientist you know we go to the lab and that's how we figure out things but people think it's the hypothesis itself that is 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 kind of crazy it's not the lack of empirical evidence it's the question itself that is strange and i never understood why they think this can't be true so why you know you can have innate biological endowment in the body but why can't you have innate cognitive capacities why that is not possible after all this is all part of the brain so why can't we have you know and the brain is part of the body right so why can't the brain has innate knowledge in it as well um so having been engaged in this discussion for very long i started wondering what's going on here so the first question was do people are really people seriously biased or is that my own perception and if so why are they biased in this way so i started running a research program that really asked people to reason about innate ideas so things like you know objects are cohesive what is your notion of an object we know from new newborns think that objects are cohesive if you see an object that disintegrate they get really surprised do people think this is a possibility or they think it's completely crazy and how does it compare to say a motor trait like you know can infants can make a fist or infants prefer happy faces to angry faces and so we ask people this questions we present them with all kinds of situation ask them to predict if you take an infant and put them on a desert island situation will they develop this capacity will they develop rules of language just as happened in Nicaragua we know that they do and what people say no they won't right and they specifically are saying that so they think that ideas the notion of innate ideas is far less likely and won't say far but significantly less likely and reliably less likely to exist compared to innate emotions innate actions it, it, they really people don't find this uh, uh, possible and in some of the experiments we actually presented them with experiments that have been done so we actually showed them with experiments that my lab has done with newborns right and asked them tell us what will happen will the newborn have this capacity and they say no way <laughs> right when it comes to innate ideas but not so when it comes to to say happy faces uh, preference for happy faces so that kind of made me got me thinking about what's going on why people are biased so first people are really biased is charged this is now a thing it's not and and then the question is why they're biased in this way and my suggestion is um i think that this is not um you know so steven pinker a long time ago in the blank slate said things like well well people might have social reasons to think that innateness is problematic if we are, you and i are different then maybe there is reason for discrimination for injustice and so forth but it's hard to say to see why it would make us biased against ideas which is the most innocent thing to be you know that's who cares about what is an object right um and the theory that i present is that i think it's kind of a our resistance to innate ideas is itself innate 
right? And what I mean by that is something very specific. So what I mean is we know that people are endowed with innate principles of core knowledge, or let's say we don't know, at least we have good reasons to suspect that that might be the case. And in particular, the work of Paul Bloom at TL suggests that people are dualists, that we think about the mind is immaterial, distinct from the material body. There are reasons to think that this is the case. We also know that people, when they think about biological capacities, about living agents, when you ask a child, what makes a brown puppy the same as its brown mother? And they say, it got this little piece of brown thing that it got from the mother. So they think about this innate essence that the you know, the puppy gets from the mother and it's material. And that's critical because if for us, innate, innateness requires a material substance. And if ideas are immaterial, then there is no way in which we can put those two things that, together. There's no way we, we can conceive of the notion of ideas as being innate. So it's kind of a perfect storm. We have, we're endowed with these core knowledge principles that are there to guide how we think about the physical world, the psychological world, the, the you know biological world, the, it, it, we're not innately you know anti-nativist by design. But if you put those three things together, this is likely what you get. And what the book is doing is export. So we have actually run um, experiments that suggest that, that actually is true. And what the book is doing is first exposing, ex exploring this theory and also exploring its implications because it bears really broad implications to questions about why are we crazy about the brain? Why people think that neuroscience is the solution to everything? Why people have problems with mental illness? Why, how we think about our true selves? How we think about what happens when we die? It turns out that all those, uh, that all those cases are, might be shaped by those innate principles of core knowledge, which make that make us blind to ourselves. So we are kind of in this predicament where we are born with these innate principles that make us um, blind to ourselves, and we're building all these stories about how, you know, our mind ticks, but we are not, you know, uh, uh, we are not a, 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 unbiased observers of our own psychological faculties. Okay, very well. And do you already know when the book will be published? As soon as it's written. <laughs> so it will be, it pro it probably be like another year or so, but the papers are, are you know, are getting out there and, um, and I'm, I think it's an interesting conversation to be had. Okay, very well. So, Dr. Berendt, I would like to thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. It was a really fun interview. And so, uh, oh, and by the way, when your book is out, I would really like to ask you again to come on the show to talk about it. I'd be happy to return. Thank you very much. Hello everybody, thank you for coming to my channel and for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel last February and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even $1, would already be a great help. 
Otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Per Alga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Jolina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford and Hans Frederick Sunda. Thank you for all.